All right, let's take our Bibles this evening, if you would, and open them to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm really happy that we've reached this particular part of our study, because if you like the Bible and you like uh, the study and you're interested in learning things in the Bible, you really look forward to the parts that just beg you to use your brain and to think and just really get down and try to uh, understand and concentrate on what the Bible is trying to say. Uh, The Apostle Peter was expounding on the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, and he made an interesting comment about Paul. He said in 2 Peter chapter 3, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to wisdom, the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. I've I've always looked at that passage of scripture as Peter writing one one of the gross understatements that's ever made in the Bible. And that, as he said, Paul wrote some things that were hard to understand. Did anybody, anybody here like me that you read scriptures, you read what the Apostle Paul has written, and you think, that's really hard to understand. I mean, do you ever just stop sometimes and say, well, I can't understand that, and you just kind of give up and move along to something else. So I, I think Peter really understated this when he said Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. But here's the great thing about it. These things aren't hopeless. Uh, they're put here for us to learn. And if you have ever felt that you didn't understand things quite right and you're having a very difficult time understanding, you're not alone because just about anybody that reads Paul will have a hard time understanding him. He had a very logical mind uh, when he wrote his method was to use very tightly controlled arguments that would positively lead to the conclusions that he intended. Uh, Paul acts like a, I guess you would call him a chess master where he can move 20 moves ahead. He's way ahead of you. You're not going to have an objection that he can't answer. And so he's just, he's really a remarkable person in his mind. And what he wrote, though, was not intended to stay a mystery to us. Uh, Everything that's written in the Bible was written for our good, for our learning. And God didn't give us things so that we would just sit here and say, well, there's just no way that we can understand what God wants us to know. We can know these things through the operation of the Holy Spirit in our heart, but it's not something we're going to sit passively by and learn. We have to pay attention to it and really put our heart into it. Uh, Paul wrote that all scripture is given for, is given by the inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and in righteousness. And he says, uh, the man of God can be thoroughly furnished with what is in God's word. And that's what God wants all of us to be. So I think you can't go wrong. When you sit down and you take your Bible and you begin to study and you really want to learn what does the word of God have to say. Well, having said that, we've reached a place in our study that's not a place for a casual reader just to sit here and get easy understanding. We have to go a little bit slowly through this to really understand what Paul is trying to say. And again, the good news is you can understand it. So let's read these scriptures and then we'll start to probe around them just a little bit and see if we can get our 
hearts attuned to what God wants us to know. So we look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 15 tonight, starting there. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now I'm going to give you an opportunity tonight. Is there anybody that wants to raise their hand here and take a stab at all, what all of that means? Put that all together and just tell us what does that mean? You look at that, and, and do you recognize what he means here by covenants and seeds and inheritance and promises and mediators and transgressions and even just a simple word that he uses in the 22nd verse, the word concluded, has very special meaning to it. And then what do angels have to do with all of this that he's just said? So there's a lot to get through here, and when you get down to it and you really find out what Paul is trying to explain. It opens up the, just a world of the richness of Scripture. Uh, no, do you realize this? Nobody could write a book like the Bible. If, if this was written by some man, we could have read it and put it upon the shelf a long time ago and said, well, I understand that. I got that. I, you know, that, that's fine. But we can't do that with the Bible. I mean, we, we have week after week after week. I mean, there's sermon after sermon after sermon and studying and studying and studying, and we just cannot get it all. I mean, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper the more that you go. So we can't put the Bible down. We have to stay in it if we're going to find out what God wants us to know. Well, let's take a moment here to, just to get our bearings a little bit and, and uh, see where we are. Uh, Paul is expounding the doctrine of salvation and the principal subtopic of the doctrine of salvation is the doctrine of justification and that is a legal term it is a forensic term that describes the relationship that we have with God based upon God's law now several weeks ago we you know I kind of knuckled down and took one message to explain to you the fundamentals of the doctrine of justification and I gave you the definition of it then and I want to give that to you again tonight uh, the doctrine of justification this is the definition justification is that instantaneous everlasting gracious free judicial act of God whereby on account of the merit of Christ's blood and righteousness, a repentant, believing sinner is freed from the penalty of the law, restored to God's favor, and considered as possessing the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, by virtue of all of which he receives adoption as a son. 
Now that, I think, is a good definition of the true doctrine, true Christian doctrine of justification. And this is, of course, the doctrine that was under attack in the Galatian churches. And we're not surprised by this. So it's not at all surprising to us to see that the devil attacks this particular doctrine because where Satan spends some of his most ingenious tactics or uses his most ingenious tactics is attacking those Uh, doctrines of the faith that are core essentials that we have to know in order to have salvation. Now, not long after Paul left the Galatian churches, the Judaizers, those ones that wanted to add the Mosaic law to uh, the faith of the Galatian Christians and said, you need to have that also in order to be justified, they came to, to, uh, to, to Galatia and they started messing with the minds of Paul's converts And they said, Paul's not an apostle. Paul doesn't have the right doctrines. And he doesn't teach the same things that the true apostles in Jerusalem teach. And so, as we've learned, Paul took the first part of this book, the first part of this letter, to defend himself on that issue, that he was a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And he did that eloquently. And then after he had finished that, he began with this this explanation of the doctrine of justification. And he shows us how the Judaizers cannot be right because what they teach does not agree with Scripture. Now, in the first part of chapter 3, what Paul did was to uh, begin his argument uh, with the experience of the Galatians. He, he knew how they were saved. He knew what they had believed. He knew that they believed in the death of Christ. They, they understood the cross. They believed in the resurrection. They had received forgiveness of their sins. They had also been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he calls upon that experience and he says, think back on that. Remember that. An experience is a good teacher, and we've learned that as well. But that is not the ultimate argument that you want to use when you're uh, dealing with people, and experience never is. The real depth of argument will always come from the scriptures themselves because the scriptures are truth. The scripture is what God said. So it's not Paul saying this or me saying this or someone else. This is what God says. And it doesn't make any difference if it runs against the grain of all of your reasoning and all of your experience. If God says it, that's the truth. And that's the thing to be believed. Now, you see, the problem is that Paul is up against a system of religion that for hundreds of years had thought that the way to be justified with God is to obey the law. Religious leaders had twisted the meaning of the law and the purpose of the law, and they made it the only means by which a person could be right with God. But Paul said that the law had nothing to do with justification, that God never intended the law as a means to save us from our sins, and it's always been that way. From the very beginning, salvation has always been by by one way, and that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Old Testament, they didn't know the name in that way, the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were looking for the Messiah, looking for the one to come. They had their faith in God, and that was the important thing. So the way that Paul seeks to prove this in Scripture is to go back to Abraham and he showed that Abraham was righteous with God before the law was ever given. But the Judaizers believe that Paul was denigrating the law. Paul doesn't have enough respect for the law. His grace, faith, teaching uh, can't be right. They'd they'd lived under the law so long. uh, The law was the main thing to them. That's what undergirds their religion. And they didn't understand how that Paul could so easily push the law aside. 
And they were convinced that even though Paul was right about Abraham, he was wrong, that God hadn't done something, that God had made some change along the way, and now obedience to the law is the way that people are to be saved. Now, the big question in their minds then is, is this, is Paul against the law? Is he opposed to the laws of God? And the answer to that question is found in these verses and the ones following. Paul is not anti-law. He's anti the wrong use of the law. He doesn't want the law to be used for the wrong purpose. The law has its purpose, according to Paul. He said in Romans seven twelve, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So he had no intentions of throwing the law out. The law has its purpose. We just need to know what that purpose is. The law has to be kept in its rightful place, and it's only useful to us in the rightful place. So in this section, Paul clarifies the purpose of the law in relation to this great doctrine of the Christian faith, justification. Now, let's begin the outline of this part of, of the scripture tonight with this. Number one is the link between Abraham and Moses. Now, verse number 15, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men... Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now in Paul's argument, there are two persons that stand at the head of this debate. Abraham stands as the representative of faith, and Moses stands as the representative of the law. Now you'll notice that we don't find Moses' name anywhere in this passage, But in the context of what Paul is saying, it's evident that he's referring to Moses because in his discussion, he mentions a mediator in verse number 19, the mediator of the law. So he's talking there about Moses. And it's important for us to understand that Abraham and Moses are not in disagreement on this particular doctrine. I mean, these are two patriarchs that stand one on the doctrines of faith and of law. And so Paul is not trying to pit one against the other. But he intends to show us that that what God said to Abraham and what he did with Moses are two different things. They have two different purposes. They, They work together. They're not contrary. Faith and law are not opposed to one another. They are not contrary, but they're actually complementary. Now, I want to note that Abraham and Moses are linked together in this passage from two perspectives. The first is the historical link. There is a historical link between the two. Now, in the timeline of the Bible, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ. Moses lived about 600 years later than that. And the link between the two concerns the promise that God made to Abraham that he would inherit a land, and this was a land that was unknown to him, and God would bless Abraham and his children, and he said all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham. Now, God told Abram, as he was known then, that he wanted him to leave Ur the Chaldees, the land in which he lived, and to go to this land that he had promised. 
Now, we went over the story of Abraham in the last lesson, so I'm not going to go over that extensively now. But the, the, the promise here concerns a son that would be given to Abraham. And uh, this son was born to Abraham when he was in his old age. Uh, that son was Isaac, as you well know. And Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And the promise that God gave to Abraham continued through Isaac. Then Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it'll be important for us to note a little bit later that each time that the Abrahamic promise was renewed, it was always renewed and continued through one specific son. It was Isaac and not Ishmael. It was Jacob and not Esau. And that correct line was always preserved all the way down. And it was very specific until it culminated in the most important offspring of all. And that is Jesus Christ. Now Moses then is connected to Abraham historically because he lived at the time that God was ready to fulfill a part of this promise to Abraham. Uh, This was when... Israel was ready to move into the promised land. And in verse number 17, we find that there is a period of 430 years that's mentioned here. And and that's actually another interesting part of this story. But that does not refer to the amount of time between Abraham and Moses. Rather, that refers to the time of Israel's sojourn in Egypt. Or you could place it from the time that the promise was renewed in Jacob until uh, the the, uh, children of Israel went into the promised land. So the historical record is very important to Paul's argument because this long period of time between the promise that was given to Abraham and the appearance of Moses and the law uh, is is significant. I mean, it's it's a very important period of time. And, And as we learned in the previous lessons, Abraham was justified many, many centuries before the law was given. And he was also justified, of course, before the law of circumcision was given. But that fact... This 430 years, this long period of time, is not entirely satisfactory to the Jews because the text implies here that they must have also argued that even though the promise was in effect, that there was a change in the way that God dealt with his people. That when he gave the law, he intended that the law would supersede the promise that was given to Abraham. And they have to argue that way. They have to because Paul's argument is pretty clear they can't count on Abraham's circumcision that can't be what justified him because very clearly he was justified before he was circumcised so they have to have something uh, to hang their hat on if they don't come up with something then Paul has completely destroyed the basis for their whole religious system they stood on the law they thought the law was their hope and they didn't really understand that the law was the very last place that they would ever want to put their confidence for their salvation. Don't put it in the law. But they don't know that. They don't understand that. And so they need an argument to substantiate their belief that the law is the way that people can be saved. So the only way that they can do it is to argue for a change of some sort. And that is that the law takes precedent over the promise or that the law is added to the promise as a condition. Now, when you think about it, that is really the whole sum total of the perversions of Christianity. It all boils down to that very factor. Catholicism says that faith is needed, but something has to be added to it, that faith alone is not sufficient. And you may remember that when I, we went over that uh, lesson on justification that I put up the 
some of the canons from the Council of Trent from the 15th or 16th century. And the Roman Catholic Church said in those canons that if anyone teaches that a person is justified by faith alone, without any merit, without any good works, then they are to be accursed. And that's really nothing less than a repetition of this argument between Paul and the Judaizers. So we have that historical link between Abraham and Moses. That's important. But what's more important than that is the other link, and that's the theological link. Now, you look down at verse number 20 for just a moment, and we're going to get to the meaning of this verse at a later time. But you'll notice in the last part of the verse, it says, God, but God is one. And I don't want to twist the meaning of that in any way. And and this is a verse that commentators argue over ad infinitum. We, we do know this, that God is one. In other words, it is the same God that spoke both to Abraham and to Moses. To one, he gave a promise, and to the other, he gave the law. And God dealt with both men. And, and he didn't deal with them in contrary ways, and he didn't give them different ways of salvation. He dealt with them both, but not in the same way, because his dealings with them were upon different principles. Now, most of the commentators that look at this part of the scripture will note Luther's reasoning on the theological link. If we go back to the original promise in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And then God goes on and he says, I will make of thee a great nation. Then he says, I will bless thee. And he said, I will bless them that bless thee. So the promise of God has nothing to do with what Abraham would do. When God spoke, he's always saying, I will, I will, I will. This is what I will do. So the promise hinges upon what God will do. But on the other hand, when we get to the law that's given to Moses, if you run down the list of commandments, you keep reading things like thou shalt not and Thou shalt not make into thee graven, any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. And so on. You keep going reading. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. The law says you shall. You shall. You shall. Here are your commandments. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. And in the promise, God says, I will. I will. And I will. And the difference between those two is the difference in the religion of God versus the religion of man. Because God's religion is always based upon his own initiative. It's always based in his grace. While man's religion always depends on duty. It always has something to do with man's works and man's responsibilities. And those are always the distinguishing characters and that, uh, characteristics. And that's, that's why we are so sympathetic to doctrines that emphasize the sovereignty of God. And that's because if you have a viewpoint that takes away God's initiative in salvation and you base that in anything, in any way, shape, or form in what man does, then you've allowed grace or works to to, to bleed over into grace. And those are two principles that can't mix. The promise and the law are two different things and God deals with those in two different ways. So you have God's religion that's always faith and grace, and that's the way that he dealt with Abraham. And then you have man's religion, which is always law and commandments, and that's the way that God dealt with Moses. Now, it's Paul's point to prove that the Christian religion is the religion of Abraham and not the religion of Moses. 
Now, one of those, the promise, is unconditional. God did not say to Abraham, Now, Abraham, in order for you to receive the promise, I have a list of things for you to do, and there are a list of things that you cannot do. No, there, there's no conditions. It's unconditional. God just kept saying, Here's what I will do. Now, on the other hand, God said to Moses, or gave him the law, which was filled up with all sorts of conditions. You have to do this, and you have to do that. You can't do this, and you can't do the other. So keep that in mind. One is unconditional, and one is conditional. And that is the war that goes on all over the Christian spectrum. We preach an unconditional salvation, while others preach a conditional salvation. Whenever you hear things like this, well, yes, we do believe that we are saved by grace, but you have to live it. You know, I had a man that, uh, that I worked with many, many years ago, and we would often talk about religion, and this is one of the things he said to me. I mean, he, he was a, well, I won't tell you what he was. He was, he was a, a Christian of some sort, and um, a good man as far as morality and all of that is concerned, a fine guy, I really, really liked him. But we got to talking about things like this, and I said, well, I believe that salvation is purely by God's grace. And he said, I do too. Yes, salvation is by God's grace, but you have to live it. Well, whenever you tack that little piece on the end, you have to live it, then you've just put works into the formula. And you can't be saved by grace and by works. One is conditional and the other is unconditional. So it's the same old grace versus law argument. But we still have this, this issue that God is one. And we can't pit Moses against Abraham and make them war with each other because God was behind each of those men. Both of them were godly men. Both of them followed God. Both of them were born again believers. So did God save one differently than he did the other? No, God is one. God never contradicts himself. So that tells us there must be something missing in this equation. God gave the promise and God gave the law and God never did anything superfluously. Both of those must be needed. Both of them must have a purpose. See, there aren't any doctrines in the Christian faith that are just stuck on there as some sort of appendage that you can have them, take them or leave and it really doesn't matter. The doctrines that were taught in the word of God are not things that are put in here just to fill up our bookshelves. You know, there are, there are some people that, that do that. They don't have enough books to fill their bookshelves, and so they stick other things on there. And sometimes people, you know, they, they don't have any intention of reading their books. They just buy them because they want to have a library. It's the decor to make things dress up a little bit and look like they have a library. But they're not really interested in, in what's in those things. Well, that's not the way God is. God does not have any filler material. He has a purpose for everything. He has a purpose for the law. It does not save. It's not to add extra requirements to the promise. It's not to mix the I wills and the thou shalts. Those are two different principles. Now let me go on to the second point. And, and rather than keep you a long time on this tonight, I'm just going to get a start here and then we'll continue it in the next lesson. But number two, the, the, the point that Paul makes is that the law does not annul the promise. The law does not annul the promise. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men... Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now, I think it's good for us to notice that there is a change in Paul's address to the Galatians in verse 15. 
You remember the chapter begins, Oh foolish Galatians. And, and from there, Paul just hammers away and hammers away. He, he brings out these rapid fire arguments almost like he can't even take a breath. And he just pounds on this thing. And he's anxious to, to stop this heresy and not let it even have a chance to breathe. You ever write a letter like that? I've written a few emails like that, and they've got me in a lot of trouble. And I, so I try not to do that. I mean, uh, don't, don't pound on people like that. Uh, so most of the time, they really don't get what you're trying to get anyway. But it seems what Paul does here is to calm down a little bit, and now he uses the common address for Christians, and he says they're our brethren. They are his brethren. Now, what do we know about how this is all taking place? Well, we're very much aware this is the Bible and these things like Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, so on. Those are letters. So what Paul is doing, he's sitting down here and he's writing a letter. There's nobody sitting in the room with him there that he's arguing with. He, he's, he's not, um, he doesn't have a Judaizer sitting there in a chair, leaned up against the wall, firing out questions at him. We're not reading a transcript that's taking place between two disputants. No, there's nobody there. But Paul writes as if he anticipates all the questions that can be asked. And what he's doing, he's giving the questions and giving the answers, just like there was a Judaizer there. Now, I thought about that, and I thought, well, you know, that sounds a whole lot like the Clint Eastwood approach. That um, he pulls up an empty chair, like Clint Eastwood did at the Republican National Convention, and he starts talking to that empty chair. Only it's not President Obama that's sitting in the chair. It's one of these Judaizers. And he starts with, what is that you said? You, you say the promise of Abraham is what? It is annulled? Are you saying that Abraham received the promise, but God was only going to honor that promise until there was the law? Are you trying to say that the promise is only good for a certain period of time, and then when Moses came that all of this changed? Is that what you're saying? And he's just talking to that empty chair that those Judaizers are sitting in. Well, what he wants to do here is to show them something. He says, let me give you an example. Verse 15, brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And that means, let me give you an example that's taken from common, ordinary experience. He says, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now, he wants to talk to them about covenants and about promises, things that take place in the ordinary, everyday course of life. Now, commentators will argue over this, whether he's speaking here about uh, common contracts that are made between two parties, such as what you would, when you would buy a piece of land or something like that. Is he speaking about that type of contract? Or is he talking about a last will and testament? But that doesn't really matter. The practical outcome is the same. So Paul is about to do something here. He's about to establish what is called the a fortiori argument. The a fortiori argument. Now don't, now, don't get upset with that and think, well, in all of your Bible studies, you have left out one of the most important Bible doctrines that there is. Because a fortiori is just a Latin term that's used in logic, and it means an argument from a stronger reason. And what he's going to give them is an a fortiori argument, an argument from stronger reason. Well, let me give you an example of that. Let's say that you come to me 
And you say, can I borrow your watch? And I say, well, you know something? This is a pretty expensive watch. And I don't think that I could really trust you with this watch. And then you say to me, well, then, can I borrow your car? Well, I'm certainly not going to loan you my car if I'm not going to loan you my watch. The stronger premise is, if I can't trust you with my watch, then I can't trust you with my car. And that works as long as your car is more valuable than your watch. Lino. So, uh, <laughs> now, now, this is what Paul is, Paul is doing here. He's trying to, to set up a, a contrast here. And the argument that he makes here is, th- is simply this. If people make contracts that cannot be changed, then how much more does God make contracts that cannot be changed? Now, l- let's think about it for a moment in, the, in terms of the last will and testament. Let's suppose that you sit down with your attorney and you're going to make a will and you're deciding who's going to get what. Well, I'll just use me. Let's say that I do that. And I sit down and... Um, My daughter, Clarissa, told me some time ago, she said, I have dibs on your library. When you die, I want all the books. Lauren doesn't care so much about books. So she said, no, don't give me the books. I'll take the jewelry, which doesn't amount to anything. And uh, I'll take uh, these other things or I'll I'll take something else. Give me antiques. I don't have any of those either, so that wouldn't work. Anyway, she says, give me the mementos. Give me all of that stuff. I, I don't want the books. Clarice can have the books. So we make the list out and... I make my will, and Clarissa gets the books, Lauren gets the other stuff. Well, it comes down to the time that I die, and they have the reading of the last will and testament, and as they're reading it, we discover something, and that is I forgot to include Nathan. And Nathan comes along, and he says, I want the books, I want half the books, I want half the other stuff. And the executor of my estate says, well, I'm sorry about that. There's no provision in the will. You don't get anything. So what can he do? The will was made. The will is ratified. I signed it. My signature's on it. I'm dead. I can't change it. And nobody else has the right to change it. Well, what if somebody did have the right to change it? Well, then my next door neighbor comes along and he says, you know, I lived next to that guy for a long time. I put up with him a lot. A lot of his junk that I had to put up with. I think that I ought to get the books. Well, that's not going to work because it's signed, sealed, delivered, and you can't change it. So Paul's argument here is, if we make contracts that no man is allowed to change, then who has the authority to come along and change what God says? He made a promise to Abraham. He said that he would bless him. He said that he would give him a land, and that was an unconditional promise. So what right does anyone have to come along and say that promise is no good and cancel the contract? Now the point that Paul wants wants us to see is that God is an immutable God. And if that's not true, then you can't trust anything that God says. If he can make a change in even one requirement of your salvation, then he can change anything that he wants to change at any time that he wants to change it. And you would have no way of knowing how in the world are you ever going to be saved. Now, here's the thing about religion. Religion is ever-changing. You look back over 1,600 years of Roman Catholicism, and what do you find? Additions, a few more years, more additions, a new doctrine, another addition, more additions and additions. So a Roman Catholic never knows when or if he will ever be finally saved. 
I mean, the church keeps putting conditions on it. So who knows when all the conditions have been met. So we can't have a changeable God. We, we just can't have it or else we would never know how we can be saved. So for the Judaizers to come to Paul and make an argument that there is a change in the law, that somehow something can happen when God has already ratified a contract with Abraham just upsets the balance of everything that God is. They, if they really understood what they were asking, what they wanted, they would never ask for it. Because you do not want a God that's going to change anything that he's ever said. You can't have a changeable God. Now I'm going to stop with that. Grace and law are always going to butt heads with each other if you try to put them in the same space. If you get law out of its place, then you're going to destroy the unconditional promises of God. Now, Paul said the law is just and holy and good, but it's only just and holy and good where God intended for it to be. And that's what we want to discover in this section. Where does the law belong? What place did God give it? It doesn't save us, so what does it do? That's what we're going to find out. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time spent together tonight. And Lord, we're just, I, I am anxious to get into the, the study of this. And uh, this is a, such an important piece of scripture. All religion of man and all religion of you, our God, centers on the very issues that we're talking about right here. There are, there are no other alternatives than either law or grace. And we need to understand why grace is the only way it can be while the rest of the world says law is what we want. So, Lord, thank you for showing us the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.